Thank you, Don. <laughs> Amen. What an appropriate hymn uh, for our text this morning in Luke chapter 9. You can be turning there in your Bibles, Luke chapter 9. just want to say and add my thanks as well for Emmanuel Bible Church. Even just reading Philemon, hearing Paul give thanks to an individual in a church, in a church that meets in his home. And then you think of so many of Paul's prayers, or sorry, epistles begin with a prayer. And the prayer begins with Paul giving thanks for a particular church. And so um, we... Frequently, and especially this week, give thanks to God for Emmanuel Bible Church and bringing us here. And so we, we're just so grateful for uh, your fellowship and participation together in living the Christian life and encouraging one another. So praise God for that. It is a joy to be back together. I trust you've had a good time with family. And now we come to feast on the Word of God, uh, what, we, what we desperately long for. Uh, to, to, to be fed by the truth yet again. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 9, where we will be looking at verses 23 to 27. Verses 23 to 27. There's a number of passages in Luke that, you know, make me want to preach the book of Luke and uh, get into this study, and this is one of them. And this is such a great and grand and almost like peak passage in the book uh, that just stands out to me as so vital to understand and grasp and understand for our lives. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God." This is the word of the living God. Some years ago, I uh, hosted a youth winter camp, and uh, we, I would invite other like-minded churches as well to, to bring the youth, and we had a great time, and bring a different speaker, usually a friend of mine from seminary, uh, um, and so I invited a friend of mine to come speak, and he spoke on the theme we, we agreed upon was, follow me, follow me. It was all about discipleship, following Christ. It was incredible, very uh, clear. In fact, one of the memorable memories of that for me was following the, the final session, we had a little bit of time to pack up our belongings and get ready before we headed back home. And one of the students who I'd been in my, in my small group and discipled uh, or just been ministering to for years, praying for, uh, came up to me and wanted to talk. And so we sat on a bench and, and talked for, for a while and he gave his life to Christ. And it was so incredible, you know, church kid, grown up. And it was at that moment that he realized the demands of following Christ and the gospel light came on, you know, and he got it. And he's still walking with Christ to this day, so praise God. Uh, in the weeks that followed, however, um, I was contacted by one of the other uh, leaders in one of the other churches who had great concerns about the messages that were preached at this camp. 
And so I took some time to meet with this dear brother who is a friend and a very godly man, and I, I respect him greatly, and yet uh, saw things differently, uh, needless to say on this. And I was just blown away uh, because I had thought there was a lot more like-mindedness on this subject. And uh, he basically began to recount how a number of students had gone home and began to tell their parents that they didn't think that they were a Christian uh, because of how they were living. And I thought, well, that's a good thing, right? Uh, to to self-examine. Well, those parents became uh, concerned. And so they talked to some of the leaders and one of these leaders was concerned about the messages. And so me thinking that there was some kind of disconnect and misunderstanding on what was being relayed from what had been preached, I began to rehash and re-explain some of the gist of the messages that were preached on what it means to follow Christ and the demands of following Christ and thinking, oh, this will clear it up. And that was the very thing that was being objected to and I didn't realize naively at the time. And so I was like, oh, there is a difference here of, of theology. And so we just were at an impasse here about what it meant uh, to be a disciple, uh, the demands of discipleship. You know, sometimes, and I'm not, uh, pause there, you know, that's just my introduction. Uh, I'm not saying any of these things are necessarily the belief of that person, but what you'll have is a number of ways that people have wrong views about discipleship and what it means. Sometimes you get the sense that people think that a disciple is a like a more mature version of a Christian. It's like the second level of being a Christian. You become a Christian, but, but some people become disciples, right? That's just not at all the way the Bible talks. A Christian is a disciple. A disciple is a Christian. And it is, va- is very important that we understand that and that we understand uh, what it means to be a disciple, now, the, the things that Jesus will describe about disciples are not the things that, that you do to be saved, but they're describing what a disciple is having been saved. So we're not saying, you know, hey, you need to work for your salvation. You need to be so obedient to become a Christian. No, we're saying if God saves an individual, he changes their life. And as a disciple, they manifest the fruit of that. And that's nothing new in our study of Luke. We've seen that time and again. And and so as we come to this passage, we see the demands of discipleship and what it really means to follow Christ. And here's a message for those who think they may be Christians but are not because they don't actually follow Christ. Now, last time, if you remember, we we saw the verses uh, 18 to 22. And in verses 18 to 20, we saw the declaration about Christ, where Peter, after recounting what the crowds were saying about Jesus, he clearly states and confesses that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the one who will write everything and bring about all of God's purposes and plans. And so he rightly confesses the person of Christ. Following that then, Jesus further defines the work of the Messiah to clarify for the disciples who had a maybe a lopsided view of what the Messiah was to do. And he introduces them to the reality that he is going to die. He will suffer, he will die, and he will be raised from the dead. And so we might call this the determinations for Christ. First, the declaration about Christ. 
he is the Messiah, then the determinations for Christ that he must suffer, die, and rise. And that leads then naturally into the, or the, the disciples of Christ or um, the demands of discipleship. And I, I point that out for you, that, that flow, because I really think this is a very helpful passage to have in your back pocket as you think about explaining the gospel to people and walking someone through, what is the gospel? Walking an individual through what it means to follow Christ. Because, you know, we can, we can put this in a lot of different ways. We can say, what is the gospel? And you can use the fourfold, which we try and emphasize, God, man, Christ response, right? Talk about who God is. Start with God. Everything starts with God. And we explain who he is. Then we move to man. Who is man? What does the Bible describe about him, uh, about people and, and their need for salvation? And then what has Christ, who is Christ and what has he done? And then what is the response to that message? Faith and repentance. Well, another way to, to go about that is to look at this passage. First, you see, who is Jesus? And what do the people say? What is really true about Jesus? And then what kind of a Messiah is he? What did he come to do? The work of Christ, the person of Christ and the work of Christ, his death, his resurrection. And then, okay, in light of that, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to follow Christ? And that's our passage this morning. So it's, it's just a really helpful package, one, two, three, to be able to walk through with someone. And so uh, I hope that helps. And I hope that you can use that in the future as you point others to Christ. But that's the flow. That's the flow of where we are moving. As we look at this passage in verses 23 to 27, it's very important to understand this because it outlines for us the demands of discipleship. And as we look at this, uh, we're going to look at it in three sections here related to the demands of discipleship that are going to help us to understand what a disciple is and what a disciple uh, and the motivation for being a disciple so let's first consider the invitation to discipleship, the invitation uh, to discipleship, rather, the invitation to discipleship in the very beginning of verse 23. Look again at verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let's stop there. That's the invitation. That's the invitation to discipleship. And notice in the text, look at your Bible, how there are no limits put on this invitation. Notice how generous it is. He said to all. This is to everyone. It is not just to the 12 who are with him. It's to the crowds as well who have things wrong about Jesus. Notice also, he says, if anyone would come after me, anyone may come, whosoever may, may come. And this is just the open invitation of the gospel. You know, we, we love to emphasize God's sovereignty, is sovereignty and salvation, and how God is going, to, he has elected those whom he's going to save, and he's going to draw those people, and Christ has died for those people, and, and rightly so, and we ought to champion that. And yet also, alongside that, even Jesus in John chapter 6 is a great example, where he articulates all of those things, but then also brackets it by saying, Whoever wants to come, come, come to me. And so we must uh, bang that gong as well and invite everyone. There's the indiscriminate invitation for any and all to come, whosoever will. And so they're all invited, the small and the great, the young and the old, whosoever may come. This is 
Just like the Old Testament in Isaiah 55, the great invitation text in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. See how indiscriminate this is? He says, hey, you say, oh, I don't have enough money. Well, don't worry. It's free, you know. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And of course, it goes on and on there. And here's the invitation. Notice how there's even just reasons to come, right? He not only invites, but he says, hey, here's some good reasons that you should come. And so we see this throughout the scripture. All are invited. Notice that in the invitation that Jesus gives, Jesus has no fine print. He just lays it all out there, right? No fine print with Jesus. People sometimes say, always read the fine print, right? And uh, this week, uh, we, we were made aware of a, a possible opportunity to get our iPhone upgraded and some extra things. And so, great. And so I had Ashley go in and find out. And uh, she went in and we've got kind of an old phone. So she went in to find out and we're like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get it. And then it turns out we don't have the right plan. It's for a particular kind of plan. So they wouldn't give it to us. And we're like, oh. So the fine print would not allow it. We were invited. But when we got to the store, we read the fine print and walked away sad, for we had old phones. <laughs> but don't feel too bad for us. I think they went to the moon with less than I have right here. So it's okay. Uh, we'll be fine. <laughs> but you get it. You know what that's like to read the fine print and go, oh, doesn't apply here. Jesus never hid the fine print. Now, that's not to say some people in Jesus' name haven't hidden the fine print. Sometimes that's the sense you get. But Jesus himself never hid the fine print. He's put it right out there. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it looks like to be a disciple, right off the bat. The demands are clear from the get-go. And we are in a section now of Luke where Luke is, is emphasizing discipleship. And he's preparing his, Jesus is preparing his his followers for what it will look like. And here's the, here's the big point that you're going to hear over and over again. Jesus has just told them what kind of a Messiah he is. He is the kind of Messiah that is going to be rejected and is going to die. He's going to suffer. That is the way to success. That is the way to accomplish God's purposes. Now, that logic is going to flow into what it means to be a disciple. If this is what the master has to go through, what do you think is going to be required of disciples? What will be required of those who follow Christ? The very same thing. Suffering and then glory. It was that, that way for the Messiah. It will be that way for his followers. And so the logic of discipleship follows the logic of what happened to the Messiah. And so that is what Jesus prepares them for. He doesn't hide it from them, but pre prepares them many times in many different ways for what the life of being a disciple in this life will look like. Now, and I think the implication, the obvious implication, is that when we share the gospel, when we give the gospel invitation, we ought to be just as upfront with people about the demands of discipleship, what it means to follow Christ, and what he is calling them to, what kind of a life he's calling them to. And so that, that is how we should be as his disciples as well. 
in giving that invitation. It is for all, but we should be clear on what Jesus is demanding, which is what this text is going to explain for us. But he is so compelling to the one who has eyes to see that they want to follow him. They see the demands and they say, he is worth it. Do you desire to follow Christ? I think that's the first step here, right? To be a disciple, it says, Jesus, if anyone would come after me. This is assuming a person who wants to come after Christ, who wants to follow Christ. They, they want to have him. And so he's saying, okay, here's what your life will look like. Here's what is going to be true of you if you're going to follow me. And so here's this desire. Do you desire to follow Christ? The sheep hear his voice and come after him. And this is what they are called to do in response to what Christ has done. This is the invitation to discipleship, which leads then to the imperatives of discipleship. The imperatives of discipleship. It's another word for commands. These are the commands he gives. And really there are three. In verse 23, look there. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, you can't really see this uh, as clearly in English, but there, there is a, uh, and I think this is somewhat helpful. I don't try to always do this, but in, in the Greek here, there are two uh, there's three commands. Two of them are in a, a tense that really just give the first two, deny himself, take up his cross daily, are really just speaking about a fundamental disposition. It's looking at it from a big picture standpoint overall. Uh, follow me, however, is this idea of this progressive idea. It is this perseverance, this endurance. And so really for you to follow Christ, these first two determinations, fundamental dispositions must be in place right? That's the logic there. It's that for you to follow Christ, you must first have these two in place, denying yourself and taking up your cross daily. And so that's the issue here. These are the conditions of being a disciple of Christ. And notice the first command here. It is let him deny himself. A disciple must deny himself. We'll just call this one denial, right? That's easy. Denial or self-denial if you want that. Now, it's important at this point that we say what this is saying and what this is not saying, okay? Jesus is not saying to be a disciple, you must deny yourself some specific action or thing, okay? He's not saying, I want you to deny yourself that piece of pie at, you know, Thanksgiving. You know, don't eat the pie. Don't eat sugar, you know, or I want you to deny yourself sleep, and I, just, I don't want you to sleep. I want you to stay up and, you know, do this thing. Or I want you to deny yourself particular comforts. That is not what he is saying here. In fact, it is far more than that. The object of denial is not something outside of you, but rather the object of denial is you. You are what is to be denied. That's what he is saying. Deny yourself. That is far more than the denial of a particular object. You are the object. This is the very loss of your identity. That's what he's saying. He's not just asking you to give something up for him. 
This is asking you to give up being you for him. You are to, we might say, disown yourself, to abandon yourself. Jesus is saying you must enter into witness protection, right? You know what that's like. Well, maybe you don't. Hopefully you don't. <laughs> We've always known you as this person, but you are not, <laughs> you know, right? Um, we will never know, I guess. Uh, you, you've seen the movies, right? Witness protection. They, they say, like, bring all of your your documentation, anything that would identify you as you. So your license, your passport, any bank statements, and you got to bring them all. And maybe in the movies, it's real dramatic and they, they start a fire and they throw them all in the fire and they watch, they watch it burn up and it's gone. And then they give you a new, they issue a new license, a new passport, a new address, a new city, and you have a new story completely. And that is how you are to be known from now on. You are to totally leave that old life. There's no association with your prior life. Destroy it all because that life is now gone. You are no longer that person. You've just been erased <laughs> is the idea. And so as a disciple, you are issued a new license, new password, and new name. That's what it means to deny yourself. I and mean, this is radical. It, it begs the question, have you denied yourself? Have you given up your autonomy to submit to the authority of Christ? This will have a profound impact on how you view your priorities in life. Life is not about what do I want to do, but what does Christ want for me? This is not, oh, this is also something you don't, you can't just do a little bit of. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like get rid of my identity a little bit. <laughs> this is really, you've either rejected your identity and had given, been given a new one or not. This is what, this is what denying yourself is saying. I don't have any right to rule my own life. I don't have any more right to call my own shots. One writer said this, uh, good quote I found. He says, a person must become apostate from his egocentric self. Oh, become apostate to your egocentric self. Another writer said this, they must renounce their own plans and purposes for their lives. So for you to renounce your plans and purposes means that person has died. That person is gone. They've been canceled. <laughs> and now you are Christ's. It is, this is about surrender to the lordship of Christ. This is what Psalm 2 is all about, right? The nations are raging. And he says, kiss the son. It's this idea of submitting yourself to the son, surrendering to the son. Really, sin at its heart is self-sovereignty. It's saying, I want to rule my own life. I want to call the shots. I want to do what I want to do. And saving faith involves surrender. It involves saying, I have no right to my life. Christ owns me. I am his. That is self-denial. I mean, it's similar to what Jesus has said already. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's to, so those who recognize they, have, they are bankrupt. They have nothing to bring to God. And so they just come to God with nothing. And they say, God, I have nothing to, to please you. I come to you to provide me everything I need. And so here is the, the first imperative of discipleship, self-denial, self-denial. The second imperative is death, death. He says, take up, he is to take up his cross daily, take up his cross daily. And Jesus will say this again in chapter 14, verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
Here again, there's a danger of misreading this because we can re easily read into uh, a phrase like this in ways that we just use the English language, right? Sometimes people say, uh, oh man, my job, it's really tough. And they say, well, it's just my cross to bear, right? They refer to it as a trial. And we're just used to maybe saying that. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about some trials that we go through, though we're not downplaying those at all. Don't hear me wrong. But that is not what he's saying here. Taking up your cross daily is not taking up whatever trial that you have and enduring that, though a good thing to do. That is not what he's talking about. What's interesting is you, you have, well, here's what you must do. You must say, what did the disciples understand him to say and, and, and mean? Now, we might also be tempted to think, oh, he means, you know, Jesus' death. And so we think of Jesus' death on the cross, but Jesus hasn't died yet. Right? He has just told them. He has just told them explicitly he will die, but that has not yet happened. But still, what would they think of a cross? They would certainly understand this meant crucifixion. Death by crucifixion. They knew about that. The cross was terrible. It was an excruciating death, and it was an embarrassing death, public. You know, we... We today, and I'm not faulting this at all, I'm just making an observation, uh, we wear jewelry that, uh, across jewelry, right? Um, now, like, I've heard this before, so this is not original to me, but people are, say sometimes, like, you know, imagine if you ran into someone and they were wearing a, a necklace and on the end of it was an electric chair, right? And, and they were wearing an electric chair. You go like, whoa, man, <laughs> um, they're in a metal band or something, you know? <laughs> but... Uh, but we understand, whoa, that would be kind of graphic, but that is the cross. And, and of course, as believers, we say, yeah, we, we love the cross because of what it represents. It represents the death of Christ. It's the focal point of history. But they likely did not have cross jewelry. And here, here's what makes it difficult for us a little bit as well. Uh, we've never seen a crucifixion before. Now, maybe you're saying, I have. You know, I watched a movie. You watch actors who were portraying that, but I don't think any of us have seen a live, real-life crucifixion. And it was horrific. About 100 years before Jesus made this comment, Cassius had crucified 6,000 men for their rebellion and did it on a highway, so that as, a main highway, so that as people passed by this highway, they would see these men lined up on crosses to be a big billboard for people. You know, we have billboards. You can go down 75 and see the different billboards. Just imagine just crosses with people hanging on them dying. I mean, that would send a profound message into your mind. And that's what they would think of with crucifixion. Crucifixion is the picture of a condemned criminal. It is a statement that I am in submission to the Roman Empire and am guilty one writer said, the fundamental idea is of submitting to the authority of another, in this case, God. And so, to take up your cross means bearing it. It means com complete surrender. Well, another writer said, what you are saying is that you have surrendered to a new agenda and you will, do all, uh, and you will go all the way to death. And Jesus says that this is something that must happen daily. Take up your cross daily. Be willing to die, go all the way to death, for your commitment to Christ. This is the ongoing mentality of the disciple. And I, and I would say, if this is your mentality, 
I mean, this is the mentality that leads to perseverance in following Christ, to daily view ourselves as not our own, as a slave of Christ. We're not independent contractors that can decide, you know, uh, oh, I, don't, I don't want to take this job of obedience. No, it's, he owns us. We have a new identity, and he's called us to walk the same way that he walked. Now, we know that not everyone is going to die physically for their faith. Everyone is going to die, just, just so you know. The death rate is holding firm, you know, <laughs> uh, 10 for 10, you know. Uh, but not all of us are going to die for our faith in Christ as a martyr. But that is what Jesus is calling them to in this moment. And most of the disciples will die this way. We just happen to live in a time in history where that, in a country where we, we, we don't have that happening to us. But that must be our willingness. It is a complete commitment to Christ. So death. Denial, death. And finally, the third imperative required of disciples is devotion. Devotion. Follow me. Follow me. Now, now can you see why these first two, if they are your fundamental disposition, why you would follow Christ? If you're willing to stick with him to death, you're willing to die. You're daily having the mentality of commitment to Christ unto death, and that I am not my own, but Christ owns me, then of course you would follow him. Of course you would follow him in a continuing, ongoing manner. He says, follow me. To be a disciple, you must follow Christ. To follow after Christ means to be devoted to Christ. It means you have a commitment to Christ and his lordship. You now live for him and not self. It means you seek to imitate Christ. It means you seek conformity to Christ. You must follow Christ exclusively. You must follow Christ joyfully. Follow Christ entirely. Matthew 28, 19, as Jesus gave the Great Commission, he says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Just notice how comprehensive that is. To obey everything I've commanded you. Let me remind you again, these are not the prerequisites of being saved to say, obey, obey, and then you get saved. No, the, this is what happens. When, when you are a disciple, when God saves you when, you, when the when the Spirit opens your eyes to see the worth and value of Christ and you, you repent of your sin and, and, and trust Christ, the nature of that faith, the nature of that saving faith is that it is a faith that begins to produce fruit and, and obey Christ and follow Christ. It longs for more of Christ. This is what followers look like. This is what disciples look like. And so if these are not present, then it, it indicates you're not following. Now, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we get more of this discipleship language. Well, we read that one already. 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, that's the idea of following, cannot be to my disciple. Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14 Verse 21, it says, 1421, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, notice just how the word disciple is used, not like super Christian, but this is just the normal Christian. How many disciples, they made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Keep following is the idea. And saying, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And so they are saying, hey, you believed, you trusted in Christ, continue to trust in Christ, continue to follow Christ. 
Continue to believe. Hold fast and expect trial. Expect difficulty. Before you were saved, you followed the lusts of your flesh. But now you seek to follow after Christ and murder your sinful desires. The work of mortification, as we call it. Murderfication. <laughs> you know, like, if you want an updated word, you know, we're killing our sin because we want more of Christ. These are the imperatives of, for being a disciple of Christ. Once again, there's no fine print with Jesus. He doesn't hide any of this. Right out the gate, here's what it means to follow me. And we must make that clear as well. But notice that Christ not only gives the invitation to discipleship and the imperatives of discipleship, but he also encourages you to follow him with various incentives for discipleship. He wants you to have reasons to follow Christ. And don't you love the Lord for doing this? I mean, he could just stop right here and say, all right, that's it. But he goes farther. Not only does he say, you are in a perilous situation, you, you must come to faith in me, and this is the quality of that faith, this is what it looks like, this is what a disciple looks like, but let me go further and plead with you, appeal to you to come to me. And so he gives various incentives. Here's the incentives for discipleship, verses 24 to 27. And here, just as you're studying your Bible, here's three things to look out for. Here, you know, when we talk about what expository preaching is, what we mean by that is we want the point of the sermon to match the point of the text. And not only that, we want the structure of the sermon to follow the structure of the text. And so if you are following along, then you notice, oh, look, Jesus gives an invitation. Oh, so like that's the first point, invitation. Oh, and then he gives commands for what a disciple is to do. Oh, there's the commands. And then what comes next? Well, notice in the text, verse 24, for whoever, verse 25, for what does it profit a man, verse 26, for whoever is ashamed, notice the four that comes up three times. Three fours, <laughs> F-O-R, right? For the recording, I guess. So three fours, three reasons, right? He's giving three reasons. And, and these are motivations or we might call it incentives. And so that's what he's doing here. That's pretty simple. That's, that's how we break this down. I'm, I'm just trying to prove to you I'm not making this stuff up, all right? <laughs> you can do it yourself. <laughs> um, and so this is how I go through the process, right? And, and coming up with these points, right? I don't just like pick them out of the, pick them out of the air. Uh, but I'm trying to discern what is the, the structure the Holy Spirit has inspired here for us to follow. And there's where the power is. So back to the text. After doing a little observation there, notice these three, four statements, and, and those are going to be our incentives here. And the first incentive for discipleship is in verse 24, and we'll call it the paradox of discipleship, because I, I heard it called that, so I'm going <laughs> to borrow that. All right, the paradox of discipleship. Look at verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, this sounds backwards, right? This sounds counterintuitive. And so we call this a paradox. Oh, what? How does this work? The idea is if you save your life, if you seek to save your life now by not being a disciple of Christ, not following Christ, in the end, you'll lose it by dying in your sin. But if you lose your life for the sake of Christ now in this life, 
In other words, you deny yourself. You die to yourself. You die to your identity. You will save your life by your union with Christ. And, and the phrase, for my sake, is key. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is all about a life lived for Christ or a life that rejects Christ. Jesus says this on multiple occasions. It becomes a common way of Jesus inviting people to him. You know, it's, it's so counterintuitive, and yet there's a logic within this that is really quite profound. I came across some time ago a quote from Augustine about this passage. And it was so good that I wrote it in the margin of my Bible, in a different Bible. So I had to find it in my other Bible. And, and I wrote it down for you here because I didn't want to forget it on this text. Here's what he says. You got to kind of follow what he's saying here. He's trying to get at the logic of what Jesus is saying. He says this, quote, if you, if you love your soul, there is danger of it being destroyed. Therefore, you must not love it since you do not want it to be destroyed. But in not wanting it to be destroyed, you love it. That's pretty good. Let me read it again. He are smart. <laughs> if you love your soul, there is danger of it being destroyed. Therefore, you must not love it since you do not want it to be destroyed. But in not wanting it to be destroyed, you love it. That's good logic here. Jesus is reminding them about the big picture. And here's this paradox. If you have the big picture in mind, discipleship makes total sense. But if you don't, it makes no sense. Of course we care for our souls. Of course we care for, that's the whole issue. You, people don't care about their souls enough here. They have a, a wrong value system. And so it skews the equation. But when we truly understand the worth of our soul and of our soul knowing Christ and enjoying Christ, then it leads us to lose our lives so that they might be saved. Remember again that the way of Christ is the way of his disciples. The way Jesus went about accomplishing salvation is counterintuitive. This is how you win, right? This is how God wins through dying, through suffering, through rejection. This is how he brings all of his, he will bring all of his promises to pass. Both those that have already been fulfilled and those that will be fulfilled. And, and it says, it looks like losing. <laughs> it looked like that to the world. But the way that looks like losing is the way to win, and so it will be for his disciples as well. It will be a life that looks like losing in some ways because the disciple will be foregoing for things that others may pursue because they have a higher priority for Christ. But in the end, it is the way of winning. This is the paradox of discipleship. This is the incentive Jesus gives to have your life saved in the end. Second is the prophet of discipleship. The prophet of discipleship in verse 25. Look there. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now, Jesus is such a master teacher. He, he plays a kind of thought experiment here. 
he brings up the ultimate hyperbole, the ultimate extreme example, because this is not the case for anyone ever in history to have absolutely everything. He's saying, imagine you become the richest, most powerful, most satisfied person in the world. Like that person has never existed. Even those who have been at the height and maybe reached this, they still had a lot that they didn't have. Many, if not most, choose not to follow Christ for far less. <laughs> they settle for far less. And so Jesus goes to the ultimate thought experiment and says, let's just pretend that you did get everything because this will cover every other example underneath that. Every lesser case of you settling for less. Imagine you got everything you ever wanted in this life, whether that be related to possessions, to pleasures, to popularity, to power. You get it all. And you, you have it for a season. But as a result, you forfeited yourself. What profit would that be in the end? All that you gain will turn out to be loss in the end. What a poor wager. Can you see how Jesus is so lovingly incentivizing discipleship? He's trying to reason with you. Remember Isaiah, Isaiah 1? He says, come, God says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And he begins to press them to repent. He's like, hey, Jesus is reasoning with us. He's saying, let me tell you how this will go for you. Think about it. He gives an illustration later in Luke, in Luke 12, verse um, Verse 15, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul? <laughs> You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He will say the same again in Luke chapter 16 when he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And this rich man had so much, he feasted sumptuously. He had the best colored fabrics and soft fabrics and great food and all these things. And, and then he died and he went to hell. <laughs> That's Jesus, what he's saying. And, and he's saying this, this man, Lazarus, he just suffered through his life. And, and he knew the Lord though. And he's gathered to Abraham's bosom. There is no greater loss than the loss of a soul. You may lose your house. You may lose your job. You may lose relationships. But to lose your soul? Incalculable. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He says, the possessions, the possession of the whole world and all that it contains would never make a man happy. Its pleasures are false and deceptive. Its riches, rank, and honors have no power to satisfy the heart. So long as we have uh, so long as we have not got them, they glitter and sparkle and seem desirable. The moment we have them, we find that they are empty bubbles and cannot make us feel content. And worst of all, when we possess this world's good things to the utmost bound of our desire, we cannot keep them. Death comes and separates us from all our property forever. Naked we came upon earth and naked we go forth 
and of all our possessions, we can carry nothing with us. Such is the world which occupies the whole attention of thousands. Such is the world for the sake of which millions are every year destroying their souls. This was the folly of Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. This is the the folly of Judas who sold the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. This is the folly of those in Philippians 3 whose God was their belly and who lived for the immediate. R. Kent Hughes gives the illustration from the life of Charlemagne. He says that 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, about the year 1000, officials of, the, uh, of an emperor opened the great king's tomb where in addition to incredible treasures, they saw an amazing sight. The skeletal remains of King Charlemagne seated on a throne, his crown still on his skull, a copy of the gospels lying in his lap with his bony finger resting on the text, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? It's like the monkey who gets his hand stuck in the jar and he doesn't have enough sense to escape by letting go of it because he can't pull the object out while he's grasping it and so he just stays there. And so many, so many sadly grasp at this world and will not let go though it will destroy them. Thomas Watson, haunting, haunting quote of Thomas Watson's. He says, what fools are they who for a drop of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath? What fools are they who for a drop of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath? That's what Jesus is saying here. How foolish. Even if you were to gain the whole world, it would be but a drop of pleasure and you would lose your soul. You would lose your soul. This is why... (laughs) This is why regeneration is so good. This is why the new birth is so amazing. Because we're so convinced, we've convinced ourselves that this life is what we should pursue, that, that all these things that, you know, that capture our attention apart from Christ, we come to see that as rubbish. And we come to see Christ as captivating. We come to see in Matthew 13 that Christ is like that treasure hidden in a field that we stumble upon and that God gives us eyes to see its value. And so we sell all to have that treasure and we sell it all in joy because we recognize we had, we had it all wrong and this is what is of most value. One of the keys of discipleship deals with what we call eschatology or the study of last things, the looking to the future. A disciple looks to the future consistently to have their perspective uh, um, put right in the present so that they can see things rightly and so live accordingly. The Proverbs are like that. They'll say like, all right, here's the end of this thing, this matter, this situation. Here's how it ends. Now reverse the tape. Now you do it. You decide what you want to do now. You saw how it ends. Jesus does that often. He'll say, here's where this leads. Here's where this goes. Now rewind the tape. Now Now it's live. Now you're, now you're playing. You've know, you got to make the decision. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice the contrast there. Those whose God is their belly, who are set on earthly things, and those who have their eyes opened and they, their citizenship is now in heaven. And they now understand the profit of discipleship, the profit. They see things are right. So the paradox of discipleship, the profit of discipleship, and notice the, the pressure of discipleship in verse 26. The pressure of discipleship. Verse 26 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Ashamed of Christ and his words. One writer said this, to be ashamed of his words is another way to express rejection of his teaching and refusal to confess him publicly. Ryle says, it shows that we care more for the praise of men than we can see, uh, whom we can see than that of God whom we cannot see. Christ requires us to confess him publicly. There, there can be no secret agent Christians. <laughs> we are public about our faith in Christ. Are you ashamed about Christ and people finding out that you actually believe that the Bible says? I think we're all tempted in that way at times, right? In our neighborhood, at our job, with our family. It's like, you know, if I say this, oh, it really puts me out there. And we get pressed frequently on these things. And maybe you're thinking about Peter. You're like, oh, what about Peter? He blew it. He, I mean, they, three times. You know this guy. No, I don't know him. Curse, curse. Cuss word, cuss word, you know, like, I don't know him. But notice what this did to Peter. I mean, he was broken over this. And the Lord uses this as the means to, to draw him back and, and restored him. What Jesus is talking about here is this, is this really full and final, this, this person has really consistently is ashamed of Christ and of his words. Peter, he, he denies the Lord, but he's not like Judas. He's not like Judas who turns back forever. And so yes, as believers, we may have times when, maybe even this week, where you were ashamed. You're like, oh man, what was I thinking? Should have stood up more unashamedly for Christ. But we come back, we repent, and we say, oh, I want to be bolder next time. I, I want to plant my flag earlier for Christ, that I'm in allegiance with Christ. And, and so we grow in, those, in, the, in that way. But here's this shame of Christ that says like, oh, I want nothing to do with him. Uh, I don't want to be associated with him. I don't want to be associated with his words. You think about that today. People who claim the name of Christ even today, and yet they're very ashamed of some of the things Jesus said <laughs> and that Jesus believed, right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Those who are ashamed about my words. And he gives a second coming context. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. This is the, the second coming glory and he's returning and he's saying, those who are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them. They, they are not my followers because my followers associate with me. They're not ashamed of me and my words. I love what Ryle says here. He says, let us resolve never to be ashamed of Christ. Of sin and worldliness, we may well be ashamed. Of Christ and his cause, we have no right to be ashamed at all. It's like, do you want something to be ashamed of? Be ashamed of your sin. <laughs> be ashamed of your wickedness. Be ashamed of worldliness, but not of Christ. No reason for that. 
we should flip in our minds when we're tempted, when we're talking to someone else who maybe we think, this person's really respectable or I want their approval. Instead of us being ashamed of the words of Christ and of Christ, we should think of their stance, not submitting to Christ, as shameful. That's what's shameful, that they are rejecting their creator, that they are thumbing their, uh, their nose at Christ who made them, who, who died in the place of sinners. That's what's shameful. And so it should lead to compassion then on our part. Why must you be rejected for Christ's sake? Because Christ was rejected. Are you better than Christ? <laughs> No, none of us are. And so if Christ suffered in this way, we ought to expect in some degree to face the same thing. The world thinks that what Jesus did, the message of Christ is folly, is foolish, it's a joke, it's laughable. This is, how, this is how the world gets made right. A guy dies on a cross, Jewish guy in the Middle East around 2,000 years ago. This is, this is what fixes everything. I mean, it's laughable. But... It is true. And so wouldn't we expect that the world would think we are laughable? That we're a joke? You believe that? You, be you really believe that stuff? <laughs> yes, we do. And it's shameful that you don't. Because everything from the creation to your conscience to the scriptures themselves scream out that this is true. And yet, you got your hand in the jar. You won't let go. It will destroy you. That's what's shameful. Pleasure, uh, the, the pressures of discipleship. I'm gonna add one more here because I think it, it's borne out in the text and it's verse 27. Verse 27, we'll call this the promise for disciples. The promise for disciples. Verse 27 says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now here's a strange text. Here's a strange verse that you scratch your head at. What is he talking about? What? <laughs> What is he saying here? And we're, we're actually gonna talk about this more next week because it goes nicely with the, the text there. There are many interpretations of what Jesus is talking about here and what he's referring to. I wanna make a few observations, four of them, from, right from the text. Notice that this is sure, this is sure. He says, I tell you truly, this is sure to happen. Notice also, this is for only some of the disciples. So sure, some for some of the disciples. There are some standing here. So not all of them, but a, a subset of the disciples, okay? This will happen soon. There are some standing here who will not taste death until. So it's going to happen relatively soon. And this involves a sight of the kingdom of God. So here's the four observations. It is sure, it is some of them, soon, and it is a sight of the kingdom of God. Now, while there's numerous takes on this, I, I think it's actually pretty clear uh, when you look at the context that it is referring to the transfiguration. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the transfiguration here. Why, why would that be? Well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell the same thing about the demands for disciples. It's the same. And then what follows in every one of them is the transfiguration. This statement, they all record this statement and then they lead into the transfiguration. So there's a contextual link there. But notice also, verse 27, until they see the kingdom of God, then verse 36 says, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of which they had seen. 
It's like a, a Luke's marker way of saying like, you will see the kingdom of heaven and then they saw a glimpse of the kingdom. Not only that, but Peter in 2 Peter 1, we'll look at this next week so we won't turn there now, but he talks about this experience and how they saw the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and how they have the more sure word of the scriptures than even that experience. But the way he describes the Mount of Transfiguration is like seeing the kingdom glory. And so we could describe the, the transfiguration as like a preview of coming attractions. And here's the logic. As Jesus is saying, hey, this is the kind of Messiah I am. I know you're expecting me to come and rule on the earth and deal with all the enemies around us. That is coming, but it's not yet. First, the Messiah must suffer, die, and rise. And you, being his followers, being my followers, Jesus saying that, you're gonna suffer too. It's gonna be hard. And then he gives them this promises, but some of you are gonna get a preview of coming attractions. You're gonna get a preview of the movie that's coming out in the kingdom and you're gonna see what it's like. And this is gonna be encouragement for you to say, that's not going anywhere, it's just not yet. And so you're gonna see the glory of what the kingdom will be like to give you assurance here and now, give you hope here and now, give you another incentive for discipleship here and now, give you an eschatology to say, this is what's coming. And this experience for these few disciples would encourage their trust and motivate them to persevere in following Christ, to get a preview of the kingdom glory of Christ. And it has a similar function for us as well. This glimpse of glory gives hope and endurance for facing what following Christ will mean. And now we, the, even the disciples, they didn't all get to experience this, only a select few. We, are, we don't get to experience this, but in a way we do because it's recorded for us here. And then the logic of Peter is so profound. It's, Peter says in 2 Peter 1 that, hey, though we got, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not, this is my, Robert's kind of paraphrased version, that though they got to experience this great event, what we have is far better in the written scriptures. These are the promises that God gives us to encourage us as an incentive to discipleship, the promises of the future. And we have far more than they had about what is coming in the future. And that's what I believe the, that, that Jesus was going to do for them, the Father was gonna do for them, was give them a glimpse of the future events. And we have far more recorded for us. And it would give them hope and encouragement to continue to press on for Christ, knowing what comes in the future. The scriptures are utterly true and reliable and there is a coming kingdom promise that will make discipleship totally worth it. And that is the message there, the promise for disciples. So what have we seen? We've seen the invitation to discipleship. We've seen the imperatives for discipleship and we've seen the incentives of discipleship. Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you a disciple of Christ? Listen to some of the lyrics of the song, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. It says, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. 
Show thy face and all is bright. Skip a verse here. It says, go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee Abba Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather, but all must work for good to me. Finally, the last verse says, haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer, heaven's eternal days before thee. God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight and prayer to praise. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have called us to be disciples and that we are joyful to be your disciples. We are thankful that you would include us in your kingdom. What a privilege it is to fly the banner of Christ over our lives because your grace. Lord, thank you for clarity from your word to, to encourage our hearts that you are so kind to give this invitation, that you're so clear in showing us the demands of discipleship, that you are so compelling as a savior and as a as our God, to draw us to you no matter the cost. And that you're so wise, Lord, and so pursuing of us to give us incentives like this to win us, to show us the folly of our sin and of pursuing a life only here. And Lord, in in our day, in our age, Lord, you've given us far more than we could have ever thought or imagined. Not only are we secure in you for eternity, but you've given us so many extra added blessings in this life, so many comforts that we know are from your hand and we ought to rejoice in, we ought to give thanks for, we ought to be happy for and take delight in. And yet may those all be just springboards and reflections of your greatest gift of drawing us to yourself. May we be committed disciples of Christ. And Lord, when we sin, when we fail, when we, when we dishonor you, draw us back to yourself, grant us true repentance and faith, Encourage our hearts. Remind us that there is more mercy in Christ always than there is sin in us. And that we might know that you are a tender and forgiving God and a God who would have us to walk near to you. Sins confessed. May we find Christ more appealing, more desirous today and so follow him. Give us grace even to our end of days to die well, to die trusting Christ, to die as disciples kept by you until the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond with a hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.